Hello everyone, this is Dr. Richard McCallum speaking. I'm the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Investigative Medicine, Jim. And as is our um, approach these days, we're trying to do a monthly podcast. Um, and we tend to focus a monthly podcast on either a very interesting topic that month or some special aspect of the month. It turns out September is atrial fibrillation month. And so obviously we were drawn to have a expert help us understand where we are with atrial fibrillation and to um, perhaps uh, give us a little insight into what he sort of sees the future may be. For all of us uh, like me who are uh, some of us maybe who are in their 70s, um, you know, it's imminent. So I'll be very interested in hearing about uh, the contributions of uh, an ideal guest, uh, Dr. Richard Lang, who is the president of the university where I am at, the Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center here in El Paso. He's also the Dean of the Paul Foster School of Medicine. Dr. Lang has outstanding credentials. Um, prior to his recruitment here, uh, he was the Vice Chair of the Department of Medicine and Director of Educational Programs at San Antonio for uh, approximately seven years. It all began at the University of Texas uh, for medical school, then residency at Johns Hopkins, followed by a fellowship in cardiology back at Southwestern, where he rose up to be director of cardiology fellowship training there and professor of medicine. 2004, he became chief of clinical cardiology at Johns Hopkins and also obtained his MBA at that time. Uh, prior to then, as I said, moving back to San Antonio and then fortunately for us, uh, becoming uh, the president and dean. He's published over 300 peer-reviewed articles and book chapters, likes to focus on ischemic heart disease, vascular heart disease, and congenital disease in adults. So with that introduction, Dr. Lang, um, I was struck by my very tertiary reading of the New England Journal of Medicine for this week, where I've always learned to go to the journal first before I do interviews, because often what happens that, that day or that presentation is quoted back at you from a recently published article. And lo and behold, we have early rhythm control therapy in patients with atrial fibrillation. And evidence that if you got aggressive rhythm control and or atrial fibrillation uh, in the first year of being diagnosed and you were randomized to that versus standard care, then the, the trial had to be stopped actually within five years because of uh, efficacy concerns. The fact is that more patients had met the first goal. Uh, the first or primary outcome uh, was that of death from cardiovascular disease, stroke or hospitalizations with worsening of heart failure or acute coronary syndrome. More people met that in the standard care therapy than in the aggressive at a 0.005 level. So this is from a group in Germany uh, I'm sure there are some limitations to the study. I'm not going to put you on the spot. I know you haven't had a chance to really scrutinize it, but certainly it's a way of opening the door for, I'm sure, what's going on every day, debates on rhythm control, ablation, and uh, perhaps just standard medical care. I'd like to get your thoughts on that and use that as a way of jumping into other topics. 
Well, uh, certainly, Richard, uh, happy to address the issue. And first of all, I want to thank you for allowing me to participate and say uh, what a privilege it is to work with you as a colleague here at Texas Tech, University Health Science Center in El Paso, and uh, to let everybody know the journals in terrific hands under your leadership. So thank you very much, Richard. Um, the, you know, the article that you uh, just mentioned is interesting. Uh, in fact, it's embargoed till October 1st, so, so that you and the listeners are getting uh, firsthand uh, knowledge of this. But, but let me uh, kind of set the stage. The, the treatment of atrial fibrillation consists of uh, uh, two things. One is managing the thromboembolic risk, and the other is addressing, as you mentioned, uh, either uh, one of two treatment strategies, and that is rhythm control, that is uh, trying to maintain sinus and rhythm in a person that has atrial fibrillation, or rate control. That's to make sure that the ventricular rate is slowed in people that have atrial fibrillation. And this has been addressed in, in two previous studies, the largest being called the AFFIRM trial, uh, in which uh, rhythm control was compared to rate control in over 4,600, excuse me, over 4,000 patients that had atrial uh, fibrillation. And after five years of rhythm control versus rate control, they recognized that there was really no significant difference with regard to the therapies uh, with regard specifically to mortality. Uh, and by the way, that extended to ischemic stroke. There was no difference. In fact, uh, other trials that have been done, there's been a meta-analysis, and likewise, and it showed really no significant difference. That is, no benefit with respect to mortality or stroke. Although most of the studies seem to favor rate control because with rhythm control, you're giving antiarrhythmic drugs and they have side effects, oftentimes proarrhythmic side effects, and it requires uh, longer stays of and durations in the hospital just to get those medications adjusted. So in that setting, uh, years ago, we used to spend a lot of time trying to get individuals to stay in sinus rhythm. And what those studies suggested was it really, really wasn't a benefit. Now, since that study was done, we've had improvements. Uh, the major drugs used in those studies were amiodarone and sotalol. We have newer antiarrhythmic medications like dronetarone, uh, which is a little bit safer. We also have uh, uh, AFib ablation techniques. Uh, and so the study that you just mentioned, again, a newer study, very early in the individual's course where they try to do rate control versus rhythm control. And the rhythm control involved some standard medications, the newer medications and atrial fibrillation. And it suggested that there may be some new benefit uh, with the newer techniques uh, and newer medications. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, there are some limitations to a study like this. It's a smaller study. Uh, it was an open label study as well. Uh, and I, I think that uh, you had mentioned to me even before we just started podcasting is that the major risk factor uh, associated with the study happened to be not uh, the type of therapy, but was the discontinu discontinuation of anticoagulation. And we know that that contributes significantly to the risk of systemic stroke, regardless of whether people use rate control or rhythm control, continuation of anti-thrombotic therapy is essential. So uh, it'll be interesting to see if this study is confirmed in other studies and whether we need to initiate uh, rhythm control earlier on and use some of the newer techniques, specifically uh, uh, atrial fibrillation ablation as well.
Uh, what are your thoughts, Richard? Well, I, I wanted to bounce off the, I guess, the aggressive role of atrial fibrillation. I've got a couple of friends in their 70s who agonized for weeks and um, voted thumbs down on ablation. And they're around here still seven or eight years later. But they wanted to ask me to ask you, um, is it too late? <laughs> is it too late to have ablation in your, in your late 70s, 10 or 15 years into AF? Is it ever too late? Um, I guess that would be the first question. Where, where do you think ablation stands today? Would you get it um, if you had atrial fib tomorrow or would you um, procrastinate and use other sort of more mundane and standard methods? Well, Richard, that, that's a great question. And, and I, I'm not sure that we know the answer totally, but there are certain pieces to the puzzle that I think are coming together. Um, we know that uh, even in the best of hands, the efficacy of atrial fibrillation in terms of maintaining sinus rhythm is 80 to 90% of individuals. And some of those people, by the way, require uh, repeat ablations for it to be successful. Uh, we know that there are some uh, factors uh, that make it less likely to be successful. Uh, one of those happens to be the duration of atrial fibrillation. People that have paroxysmal atrial fibrillation and are younger uh, without structural heart disease tend to be those that get a more favorable result. At the other end of the spectrum, if people that have had long-standing atrial fibrillation, people that have uh, what might be called an atrial myopathy where the atrium is particularly large or uh, there's fibrosis in the atrium. Uh, some people have even used things like uh, MRI, looking at late mm. gadolinium enhancement to identify a fibrotic scarred atrium that's less likely to be uh, amenable to successful ablation. Uh, so the, the answer about who to do ablation in, uh, certainly if, if individuals are symptomatic despite uh, medical therapy. Those are people that probably should have an attempted ablation. Uh, people that are probably more likely to have a durable response. Now that we are listed some of those characteristics. Mm -hmm. uh, on the flip side, people that don't have symptoms uh, probably won't benefit from AFib ablation. Uh, people that are frail or elderly or people that have a large left atrium, people with significant structural heart disease uh, may not benefit as well. So uh, again, it's, it's those things. Now, a lot of people feel like, well, I want to get an AFib ablation to get off anticoagulation. That's not necessarily the case because atrial fibrillation can still occur after the ablation and in many individuals it does. So I, I don't think that we should use AFib ablation as an excuse to get off anticoagulation at this particular time. And speaking of anticoagulation, uh, Kuvenin's been a, a tried and trusted friend. Is there any reason to jump to the new, um, the new players or the new kids on the block if you're happy on Coumadin and you've worked out a way to do your home finger sticking and do your control well and you know the game? Uh, do we take on the new kids on the block, which might have more prolonged um, potential for um, having breakthrough bleeding and other aspects that you could educate us on? What's your uh, view on the pros and cons there? Well, Richard, you're certainly not going to, you haven't thrown many softball questions yet. Uh, so I, I must say that uh, I was probably one of the late adopters to the direct oral anticoagulants. Um, and, I, and I say I was late because initially uh, we had no agents to reverse them. Uh, 
if someone developed bleeding complications. Uh, and obviously you can reverse uh, vitamin K inhibitors like warfarin. Um, but what those studies have shown, and I think uh, either individually or in totality, when we compare uh, the results of people that take warfarin versus the direct oral anticoagulants, regardless of which one has been approved by the FDA, is uh, the individuals that take direct oral anticoagulants have less stroke, they have less systemic thromboembolism, they have a lower mortality and less intracranial hemorrhage than those that take vitamin K. Now the flip side is they have a higher risk of GI bleeding, slightly higher. But in total, I think the data would typically uh, take us toward the direct oral anticoagulants. Now, um, I always hesitate if something ain't, ain't broke, don't fix it yeah. uh, to the individual that's doing well. But, but I can tell you that even those of us that think we're doing well on warfarin, at least a third of the time, we're either over or under anticoagulated. Uh, despite our best, best efforts, because some of that's related to not only do we routinely take the medications, but to our diet and other things that may adjust the, the Coumadin levels. So in general, now I'm trying to get my patients on the direct oral anticoagulants. And es especially now, because we have agents that can reverse them, if in fact uh, they have uh, bleeding episodes. Now, the one group that I, I may hesitate doing that in are those that would be considered to be at low risk for stroke, but at a high risk for GI bleeding. And those are the individuals I might put on warfarin rather than direct oral anticoagulants. Now, Richard, obviously you're an expert in GI matters and, and GI bleeding. Uh, has that been your experience as well with the anticoagulants? There's a trickle um, database <coughs> that says, yes, uh, you are a bit more likely we stop than maybe two or three more days ahead. If we take out a polyp, we're a little more nervous. And the data would, would support exactly what you said, Rick. So how about those of us who are getting into that age group? Um, is there anything about uh, being a bit uh, proactive in uh, monitoring your, your cardiogram? Are there any new devices or tricks where patients can sort of intermittently um, access their heart rate or their cardiogram um, if they're curious or they're about to go on a major trip and be isolated from medical care, uh, is there any interest in sort of working in that field as far as being more uh, proactive? Yeah, and, and so Richard, I, I'm gonna uh, even uh, split that question into two yeah. parts if you don't mind me, yeah. in terms of being proactive is, are there things that you can do to prevent atrial fibrillation? Right. Yeah. And then uh, are there things that we should do to detect it? In individuals that are asymptomatic. So if you'll allow me to take yep. both of those paths. Okay. Sure. With regard to proactive, we know that there are a number of risk factors, what I'm going to call modifiable risk factors. Uh, things like uh, hypertension, uh, obesity, uh, diabetes, uh, heart failure, uh, use of alcohol, whether someone's hyperthyroid or not, and even sleep apnea. And studies have shown that uh, risk factor modification, aggressive risk factor modification, uh, including uh, moderate exercise, not, not heavy exercise, in fact, intensive exercise like uh, Nordic skiers and ultra marathoners, they have a higher risk of atrial fibrillation. But moderate risk, uh, moderate exercise lowers your risk. Weight management lowers your risk. Controlling blood pressure 
lowers your risk. Uh, and uh, either stopping or reducing alcohol intake, they all lower your risk. So in terms of proactive things, those are all things that we can do. Now, there are some things that are not modifiable. Uh, age, mm -hmm. uh, increase incidence as we age, increase uh, incidence as people are tall. So I, by the way, I always thought that being six foot four was an advantage. Well, it's not if you're trying to prevent atrial fibrillation. Uh, and then uh, individual- Does that overlap this sort of Erlos Danlos syndrome, elasticity, Marfan syndrome theories, or what, what is being tall um, co correlate with this? I wonder. Well, it, it, uh, that's a great question. Yeah. Uh, it, it's being tall even in the absence of any connective tissue disease. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's just one of the veins. We have multiple veins of being old. Yeah. And uh, other than hitting our head on doorways and uh, in airlines, uh, when the uh, luggage uh, uh, bin is open, this happens to be one of the other banes of just being tall. And Richard, I'm not sure that we know exactly why. Yeah, I, I see a lot of patients with this, uh, you know, the pot syndrome and the Marfans yes. and the so-called Ulos Danlos. That's getting a lot of press lately. Yeah, uh, and, and in fact, you know, now that you mention it, those, those kinds of things, uh, some of them vascular, some of them neurogenic, Yep. And there are some neurogenic things that contribute to uh, atrial fibrillation, like excessive stress. Mm -hmm. uh, so, uh, so these are uh, things that we can do proactively. Now, the real question is, how active should we be in trying to detect asymptomatic atrial fibrillation? And that right. is, you would do that because presumably if you identified somebody, you'd put them on anticoagulation to prevent a stroke. Well, unfortunately, we don't have any good studies saying that that's an effective uh, way of either assessing individuals or treating them. Um, so the recommendations are in individuals under the age of 65, we just do uh, what I'm going to say is routine spot monitoring. And that is when someone sees you in clinic, um, just taking a pulse or if there's an indication to do an EKG. Now, where it's even a little bit clatter in those over the age of 75, that have risk factors for atrial fibrillation. And the risk factors I mentioned, diabetes, hypertension, obesity, poor uh, mobility, sedentary lifestyle. Uh, there is some thought that those individuals, maybe we ought to be doing a better job. And uh, a better job depends upon uh, how long you monitor an EKG. So if, for example, they've done studies in patients like this, Richard, or patients that have cryptogenic stroke and, and no incidence of no history of atrial fibrillation and said, um, can we detect an occasional episode of atrial fibrillation? And if you just happen to do a 24 hour monitor, you can detect AFib in about 2% of those individuals. Mm. If you extend it to a week and have a week monitor, it goes to about 7%. If you mm. extend the monitoring for two to three weeks, it's in the neighborhood of about 12 or 13%. And for a full month, you can detect it in 15%. Now, um, that doesn't mean that there's a causal relationship. Right. Uh, because the real question is, if you detect asymptomatic atrial fibrillation in older individuals, does it correlate with stroke? And some studies suggest it may not. But, but clearly, prolonged monitoring does a better job. And uh, Richard, you and I both have yeah. patients that now have these implantable monitors right. that can monitor someone for up to a year, or they have a pacemaker in where uh, we can detect when people have uh, asymptomatic episodes of atrial fibrillation. Uh, and again, the real question is right now is when you detect it asymptomatically, 
um, how aggressive you, should you be in um, treating it. it? It appears that to some extent it's related to the burden. How long are they in atrial fibrillation? Mm -hmm. it, it, in the ACE, it, over 24 hours, it certainly increases the risk, but probably even over five minutes, but over a certain amount of time in a 24 hour period, maybe over an hour. And if the patients have other risk factors, such as congestive heart failure or hypertension or age or diabetes or vascular disease, or if they're females that have a higher risk and you detect asymptomatic atrial fibrillation with a high burden rate, mm -hmm. those are people that we're, we're now considering putting on anticoagulation. Would you promote the baby aspirin theory regardless getting into your 70s as sort of a way of life because you know, maybe it's a 20% decrease in the chance of a, of a thrombotic event, or is there any reason to really believe that, or are you a baby aspirin believer? You know, I, I, am, I am for the proper risk-benefit ratio. Uh, and obviously the, the risk in someone, for example, that has uncontrolled hypertension of an intracranial hemorrhage on aspirin is high, or people that have GI bleeds, you, you and I would not put those people on aspirin. Uh, but I, I think uh, for a favorable risk-benefit ratio, aspirin can be helpful. Now, in the setting of AFib, how effective is aspirin at preventing stroke? Uh, it's, it's better than nothing, but for individuals that have what's called a high chads score, it's not nearly as effective as, uh, as an uh, oral anticoagulant. Yeah. So, uh, so for very low-risk patients, you might do it, but for those individuals with uh, atrial fibrillation and a high CHADS VAS score. Uh, that is again, CHADS meaning, do they have congestive heart failure, hypertension, age over 65 or 75, diabetes, a history of a stroke or a TIA, vascular disease uh, or female gender, then those individuals that have a high score should probably be put on something more effective than aspirin. Well, Rick, we might finish up and getting back to um the fact that stress is everywhere in your job and you're trying to uh, tough it out during a pandemic, trying to run a university and um, look after our faculty. What is your take on uh, how life has been here as you start a new academic year and uh, your thoughts about the virtual reality of, uh, of teaching? And uh, maybe that's gonna, we're gonna see a lot more atrial fibrillation. <laughs> It's interesting. Uh, on the one hand, you might say there's been a lot of stress, uh, but I have to say that I share this uh, pandemic uh, uh, with terrific colleagues. And, and although it's touched every aspect of our university life, our research, our clinical care, and our education, uh, the work that the faculty has done to maintain the quality of all of those and keeping all the individuals on campus safe has been absolutely extraordinary. So well, on the one hand, it was initially stressful. Now I, I actually consider it inspirational. Uh, and uh, uh, it's been uh, phenomenal. I must say that our, our students uh, don't enjoy virtual learning. They like the camaraderie, they like being together. And the third and fourth year students are particularly glad that the clinical rotations yeah have continued and kudos to our hospital partners that never stop the students from coming. Right. Uh, in, in part, they realize they don't want doctors that are poorly trained. You don't want doctors that haven't been seeing patients, but they're also gonna be their frontline workers. 
in the next year or two. And they need to know how to take care of these patients and how to do so safely. So uh, uh, although uh, we've had to address the same situations in El Paso as at other communities, I think we have done to collectively a superb job of doing that. And kudos to our faculty uh, and our residents and our students that have risen to the occasion. And for your help too, Richard. Well, Dr. Lang, I wanna thank you on behalf of the AFMR and the editor of uh, Jim. I, I know uh, you're a very proud uh, associate editor of that journal and been a pioneer in, in developing it. And uh, we want to encourage anyone who's listening to join AFMR as a young faculty member. This is your schoolroom. This is your chance to evolve and develop into a, a true academician, as you've seen Dr. Lang do and others. So with that note, uh, Dr. Lang, I'd like to say this is uh, a good way to finish up atrial fibrillation month. I think we brought, you gave us some pearls and left us with some unknowns, which is uh, part of medical life, but we're gonna press on and get through this pandemic as well. And um, for those of you who wanna see all our podcasts, they're listed in the inside back cover of Jim. We have a number of great podcasts over the last um, eight months since I've been doing them. And we look forward to um, your input and we look forward to having Dr. Lang rejoin us in the future. Thank you again very much. Uh, Dr. McCallum, thank you for allowing me to participate. And again, thank you for your uh, leadership nationally and in our community. And thank you for your friendship. Much appreciated. Thank you, Richard.